Hello, and welcome to the Healed Podcast, the place where we can talk about all things food, body, and mind from an anti-diet and weight-inclusive lens. My name is Marie-Pierre, or you can call me Marie, and I am your host. I'm a registered dietitian with a background in psychology, and I specialize in food relationship and body image. And I am the founder and CEO of The Balance Practice, a treatment center for eating disorder and disordered eating. Every week on the podcast, you will hear from myself, the team at The Balance Practice, and other providers who have dedicated their careers in supporting folks to have better relationship with food and their bodies. On this podcast, we aim to provide a safe space to have these deep and juicy conversations regarding eating disorder, disordered eating recovery, health, relationship, body image, and honestly, anything we believe will support you in living your big, beautiful life. We believe in the power of healing, and hopefully this podcast will be a great addition to your toolbox in your healing journey. Thank you for tuning in today, and let's get to the podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I hope that we are doing so beautiful today. We had a little pause with our podcast in the last week, but we are back. And I'm super excited today because as you know, or maybe don't know, maybe you know, this podcast used to be called the Balanced Dietitian Podcast when it was just me here at the practice doing my thing. And over the years, the practice grew quite a lot. And we are now a team dietitians, therapist, social worker who specializes in eating disorder care. And this summer, when we change our name to the Healed Podcast with Healed ED because healing eating disorders. The goal was really to be able to start including more of the team members and we're doing just that today. Today, I'm super excited because we have Monique Robinson, a psychotherapist, a registered psychotherapist who's been with the practice for, I want to say eight months now. She is coming on the podcast and I am Really excited for this conversation. So Manik is a registered psychotherapist, and she also is a graduate of the University of Ottawa with a bachelor's degree in psychology and a master's degree in counseling psychology. Over the past five years, she has worked in community mental health settings through the Mofa Hospital, Phoenix Center for Children and Families. Through these opportunities, Manik has gained experience presenting issues such as depression, anxiety, self-harm, trauma, life transition, LGBTQ plus issues eating disorders, and divorce. Manik has also worked in private practice and is now at The Balance Practice, working with folks who are experiencing eating disorders and working through their recovery. Manik has a really strong trauma-informed and client-centered care in her practice. And she is really an, an amazing provider, an amazing, compassionate, kind, caring provider who is able to support clients through, you know, having lived experience, and which is informing her care but as well as like clinical guidance and recovery. Everybody who meets Manik absolutely loves Manik. And I'm sure you will too when you listen to this podcast episode. Today on the episode, we wanted to talk about recovery and the stages of recovery and really leaving space to painting a picture of what recovery can look like, but also debunking some of the myths and what recovery actually isn't. And Really being able to show that recovery is a personal journey and it can look different for all of us. Manik will also take us through the changes of change and what is kind of normal to see in recovery. We often say that, you know, recovery is not just about like choosing recovery because if it was, people would recover like 
super fast, right? Like it's not just that choice. There is so much behind recovery. So I'm really hoping that today's conversation provides you with nuances when it comes to the recovery trajectory. And I hope that you're going to love this episode as much as I did. So on that note, let's get to the podcast episode. Good morning, Monique. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. How are you doing today? I am doing good. I'm I'm happy we're doing this podcast. We've been talking for a while to get more of like TBP behind the mic. So I'm really pumped that you're here with me today. Very excited to be here. Yes. Okay. So for people who may not know you or about you, I'd love to hear your like origin story and what got you to do the work that we do today. Because we often say in eating disorder care is like eating disorder care. We often have our own like stories that led us to be so passionate about this work. So I'd love to hear yours and what got you to become an amazing eating disorder therapist. That's a great question. I like the word like origin story because it always reminds me of like superhero, but like (laughs) more from like a perspective of uh, more on a positive note, right? But I would say I've always been interested in psychology, like ever since I was a little kid, um, always wanted to kind of learn more about kind of the way people think, the way people act, like how is everything linked? And one of the big pieces of, I guess, my origin story is I did struggle with um, eating disorders for a good 14 years of my life. So it's been something that has impacted me in various ways, right? Just in the sense that it's affected me, how I've perceived a little bit like my teenage years through school. And then it also made me decide to become a therapist just in the sense of I've worked with some beautiful, amazing clinicians throughout my journey and wanting to not necessarily give back, but just be inspired by how the the impact they had on me was so helpful and wanting to kind of do that for other people. Mm-hmm. And with eating disorders too, I find it's not necessarily true that a person has to have lived experience to be able to be helpful in any kind of therapy setting. But I do find that um, my experience with eating disorders have helped in the sense of being able to to have that compassion piece and, and empathy piece of the lived experience. Right. So a lot of the shame piece can be kind of out of it because I, I can go back and reflect on myself like ah. I know how that feels, not necessarily exactly because we will have different experiences, but some of the essence will be the same, right? Especially with shame. And that's one we don't talk about a lot, right? Absolutely. And thank you so much for for sharing with with the listeners too, like how your own lived experience kind of, I find it always interesting when I think about like my stories and other people's stories, like these moments in life and the things that happen to us in our life that kind of then push us in a certain direction. It's pretty cool when we're able to take something that was probably one of our biggest challenge and turn it into kind of a passion and being able to help other people through that process too. Yeah. And I agree with the lived experience piece too, where it's like, I don't, like you said, like not, we don't always need lived experience, but often when there is that gap between evidence-based support and where we're at, I think that lived experience can be so important in that way, especially I think with eating disorder care, I think it's better now. I don't know if it's actually better if it's just because we're so ingrained in this world, but I'm like, I feel like there's more awareness now, potentially less stigma around it that like, you know, we're kind of bridging that gap a little bit, but definitely having that understanding and being able to like, yeah, like it sucks and I've been there and we are able to kind of provide a different perspective anyways on treatment. Absolutely. And I think 
think the other piece too is like being mindful. I think it helps in terms of being mindful of kind of questions to ask or even language mm. to use or not being conscious of not making overgeneralizations or things that could potentially be triggering. Like I've worked with some clinicians with, uh, I guess it's just like, oh, well, you know, just eat like those kinds of messages. And that's <laughs> obviously not very helpful in the moment. No. You're like, oh my God, I have never thought of that. Thank you. Genius. I'm good though. Thank you so much. (laughs) I am healed. Oh, goodness. Yeah, absolutely. And like little things too that I find like I remember going through treatment and my dietitian loved her, but she kept like, I promise you, you're not going to get half fat. I promise you like you're not going to gain weight. And like I remember with my eating disorder, I was like, thank you. Like you understand me. Did not realize that that kept me in my eating disorder for so many more years. And now on the other end that you can be like, wow, like... (laughs) How impactful that was to maintaining my eating disorder for so many years. Absolutely. Which and is I, wild. The, the use of language too. Like I, I don't like to, to use the, and it's not something that I would use in session, but with people talking about the word goal weight, right? Sometimes mm. just the words, the words can have an impact in that sense of like. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's a tough one. It's super tough. It's super tough. Well, I'm super happy that we get to be here today to connect today. And we wanted today to talk a little bit more about recovery and stages of recovery and what that looks like. I think there's a lot of I would say they're myths or misconceptions around recovery and eating disorders. I think social media plays a big role in kind of this like quick fix, like you'll recover and like this is how it's going to look like. And then we miss a lot of the nuances of what recovery actually is and what it takes and how it can be experienced for folks. So I'd love to even just walk through with you to start off kind of a general overview of like the recovery process and what are the different stages and recovery and expectations that we may have entering recovery. Absolutely. And it's it's um, a good point in the sense of just the word recovery. Like sometimes that's one of the, the, the places where we can we can start is what is this person's definition of, of recovery? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it's something mm-hmm. that is that can be ever changing, too. Right. It's not like set in stone. You said on September 23rd that this is how recovery should look like. Therefore, this is what we're doing. Right. But it's more the yeah. sense of what does it kind of mean for you or what does it what could it look like for you? What makes it feel like it's hard? Like kind of having that openness to ask those questions. That's like such a beautiful space to just start. Like, can we even redefine what that means? And what if there's not one way mm-hmm. and there's not one like end destination of what recovery should quote unquote be? Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes when we talk about the different stages of recovery, like we do typically start at the stabilization stage, right? Just to, and that could look different for everybody. Like that's one of the, sometimes the questions that I'll get sometimes, what is this going to look like? Right. Mm-hmm. What am I? going to expect what is this and some and it's it's a hard one because it can look different for for different people mm-hmm. and i don't know if it's similar if kind of something that you've noticed too in terms of like the how people kind of conceptualize things Oh, a hundred percent. And I think the way that my brain works too, like I like to kind of have that idea and roadmap and I'm Mm -hmm. like, I'm so impatient in life, which is something I'm like actively working on all the time. But I totally get that when clients are like, tell me, like, what are we going to do? How is it going to look? And I think we can have those big themes and those big markers that we're probably going to have to go through, like stabilizing and making sure our body is safe. Mm -hmm. No matter where we're at, no matter what eating disorder we're at, we're going to have a version of this. And I think that's where it gets to change. We're like, it may be a different flavor for you. However, 
this part will still be part of our recovery in some capacity. And then it's just adding those nuances of what that looks like. But there is truly not like a one size or one like week one, here's what we're going to do. Week two, it's going to look like this week three, because all eating disorders are so completely different, Mm -hmm. right? Like the reason that they are created, why they're maintained, the different behaviors we may have, the environments that we live in. And it would be like crazy to think that we could do it in a cookie cutter way. Absolutely. And again, like stabilization, sometimes like what I'll, I'll incorporate in, in sessions and it depends on where the person's at too, but it can be um, more the the distress tolerance, the the tolerating mm-hmm. difficult emotions. Like we can maybe start there kind of, uh, maybe we're not, we're going to go, we're, we may not go into the exploration of the origin or we may not go into identifying values just yet. Maybe it's just kind of how do we how do we get you to a place where it feels like we can explore those topics that are maybe more difficult or a little bit more mm-hmm. nuanced, right? But it depends. People may present at different stages. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. What else would you say like in the recovery process that are maybe some other of those big steps that we're all potentially going to move through? Yeah. So like the stabilization one is the one that typically people will start out. The The other ones is more that sense of kind of working through. Like if we think about like the stages of change, it would be more in the, the contemplation, preparation, action phase that can be there as well. So I would say that that's kind of how I would conceptualize that. Yeah. Okay. I'd love us to take a pause and talk about stages of change because somebody listening to this is like wait what what are we talking about My brain works so, like that it's very like back and forth this and that and sometimes no, it's- I, I absolutely love it I'm like this is great let's go on this tangent now <laughs> But if you could explain like what is like what are the stages of change and how does it like actually apply to eating disorder treatment? I think that'd be really, really cool. For sure. Um, the first thing that I like to I like I, I think in pictures, so this really helps me kind of conceptualize it too. But it's the sense of um if we see it not necessarily as a like a little circle, it's more that sense of like if you see the circle as, you know, maybe the different stages and it goes around, it's more if you kind of flip it to the side and it's one of those like not slinkies, but like kind of spirals. Yeah, Slinky is literally the picture I had in my head, like the rainbow Slinky going up and down the stairs. I used to try to, you know, I think everyone who had a Slinky tried that, right? You just kind of put it to the side and push it and see how it would go down. Uh, How to know you were born in the 90s. Right. I I still try to untwist it, to untwist mine, but I just never could get it to untwist. So, yeah. Yeah. So, little tangent, but it's more that the shape, the shape of that, right? Mm -hmm. So, you kind of see it like maybe it feels like the person's going around in circles, but it's more that sense of kind of moving up, moving, maybe there's a a little bit of a slip here, but it's more of that awareness piece of, well, there's still all of this kind of happening too at the same time. It may not, it may not look like that. It may look like a person's kind of stuck. Yeah. Yeah. I like that visual of like, you can feel like you're going in circle. You're just going through the cycle, but the cycle is actually like when you feel like you're going back, you're actually going back to come forward and come a little bit more upwards every time. Yeah. So you're kind of going up that little, mm. that little slinky and, you know, maybe, maybe there's times where you kind of go a little bit down, but you can also go back up too. And it, I like that visual because it provides a little bit more of that, that nuance piece. Mm, I like that. And then what's included in those like slinkies and cycles? Like yeah. what are those different stages of change? Uh, so typically like people like to break it down into five, sometimes six stages. I can go through them just to give a bit of a roadmap. 
Hey, hey, this podcast episode is brought to you by The Balance Practice. The Balance Practice is an eating disorder treatment center for folks across Ontario who are ready to recover from their eating disorder. Our multidisciplinary team of dietitians and therapists are here to collaborate with you and support you in your own recovery, whatever that looks like for you. If you are interested in getting support in your recovery, or if you're the loved one of someone who is in recovery and would like to access your own support to feel really empowered in the recovery journey, you can visit www.thebalancepractice.com for more information. We have multiple clinicians right now who are accepting new clients before the end of the year. So reach out now to get started today. The first one is pre-contemplation. So if we apply this more to like eating disorder care, it's that sense of there isn't really a problem at that moment. There's maybe more of the denial piece. There's the perceived benefits of change kind of outweigh the cost to change. So what this could look Mm -hmm. like is maybe there's eating disorder behaviors happening, but there isn't necessarily the thoughts of like, "Mm, I don't know if I should do something about this. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the hard part about this stage is that if a person is noticing that they're in that that state most of the time is other people who kind of see that there may be a problem right mm. so sometimes we'll see more parents being like hey like i'm worried about my my child or my teenager and they're saying everything's fine i don't get it and that can be really tough yeah i, I was gonna say like this is the exact picture that i have often mm-hmm. and especially at the practice here it's like when the the parents or their loved ones are now starting to see like wait no this doesn't feel like it's he- like for health anymore quote unquote mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and they're like it seems like there's something off but the person who's living it is is not yet there like they're like absolutely nothing is wrong like this is good this is okay and like they may be actually even getting that external validation from society based on their behaviors which makes it even harder to yeah even realize that what's happening is not good right and the priest like that's a really good point like the praise piece right especially if you're like well how could i be doing something wrong and if everyone else around me is saying that i'm doing great or commenting on my body or commenting on you know associating kind of positive traits to Mm. kind of some of the behaviors that are happening so it's really tough absolutely yeah so that's that's the first stage the second stage is contemplation so we're not in the pre-contemplation we're in the contemplation this is where there's a bit of that awareness piece. So it's, there's maybe some willingness to admit that like, mm, I don't know. So I don't know if this is, there's some stuff happening here. The fear of change is still very high though, right? There's a lot of internal conflicts um, and it can fluctuate in the sense of in the in, in one moment, it could be like, mm, maybe this is a problem. And the next kind of thought could be like, oh, well, no, it's okay. Right. So there's a lot of that ambivalence to, to even thinking about change mm-hmm. on that point. But there's a little bit more of that awareness piece there. Yeah. I feel like that this is such an important stage when there are those like seeds that are starting to be planted of like, wait a minute, like, I don't know if this is actually good. Yeah. Like, I think that's such a big part. Like, it's like a stage that needs to be celebrated, <laughs> you know, of like even starting to question their own thoughts and behaviors, I think is such a big win. Absolutely. And, and sometimes I find that it can be, it can be challenging um, for loved ones to be like, oh, no, like now you're saying that there is something that needs to change. Let's go. Let's do it. But they're at a different stage. If the person with the eating disorder is stage two. And again, I also want to 
throw in the caveat that this is, it's not very linear. Like these can fluctuate. This can happen within a long period of time, a short period of time for different behaviors, for different thoughts. Like, so it's not like a check one. I did my, my stage one. <laughs> we're done. I moved to stage two. It's, there's a lot more of the fluctuation between the stages. It's more, it's more dynamic and fluid than, you know, like more of like, I've done this check mark. Let's go to the next one. Yeah. And I like that you say that, like, even for different behaviors, mm-hmm. like I can be in like contemplation for recovery, mm-hmm. but maybe I'm like pre-contemplation to challenge certain ED behaviors, Absolutely. Absolutely. right? Or maybe I'm in action in one part, but mm-hmm. then there's other parts of the ED that I'm not yet willing to even recognize or Absolutely. whatever. Yeah, I, I love that of, you add that nuance. Yeah, sometimes some of the work is kind of moving through those, right? Sometimes it's making links or, or, or talking about some of the even further in recovery and going um, over maybe eating disorder rules of this person that the eating disorder has kind of created for that person and for people to go, oh my goodness, I didn't actually realize this. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, What's our stage three? Three is preparation. So this is where there's that sense of like, okay, like I'm there's some decision potentially not necessarily making, but thinking about making a decision. So small mm-hmm. steps, it could be like talking about change, like maybe I'll try going to this group or maybe I'll Google some therapists or maybe I'll mm-hmm. talk about this to, to family members if I feel that could be helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's more of like you're preparing to the preparation stage for, for, for change. This one here, I like to talk about this with, with family members that or loved ones is this is the stage where you can help kind of help access, help with resources, kind of help guide that if a, to point the, the person towards the resources. So it's that, that mm-hmm. sense of like, maybe I'm willing to, to try something different. I love that. Yeah, the researching part, mm-hmm. I think is that I really see it that way too. I'm like, okay, let's Google. Let's see what Google has to say mm-hmm. <laughs> about all of this right. and try to preparing ourselves to move forward. Right. And sometimes even in that stage, I'll, folks will comment there, they'll Google, they're like, do I actually have an eating disorder? What does the eating disorder look like? And it's kind of in contemplation and it's like next steps. And, mm. and again, the next steps can look different for everybody, right? It's not the next steps necessarily the person is seeking support. Maybe it's talking about it with family. And maybe it's changing certain things around the house in terms of of helping there, right? So it's just, Mm -hmm. it can look, I do want to emphasize that it can look very different for for everybody. Stage four, action phase. So this is where the the talking about the steps is more concrete, right? So it's like, this is where you'll see the person engaging in treatment. And this is one of the little caveats there that I like to share is it doesn't mean that the person is still not struggling. Right. They could be engaging in following a meal plan. They could be eating all of the things on the meal plan, but it doesn't mean that they're not still struggling. Yeah, absolutely. I would even say for some, like the action phase can be the hardest because mm-hmm. we're actively moving in recovery, but we can imagine that the ED is probably fighting back it's and being loud. louder, right? Yeah. At that time. So when we're actually putting in the like recovery behaviors and efforts and things that we're doing simultaneously, we can have the ED rise and be louder because now it's like threatened. Absolutely. And that's a really good point where that sense of um, it'll get louder because the coping, like if, if the eating disorder, if we're talking about the function of an eating disorder and how there's many functions, a lot of times it's important in terms of coping, right? So if we're taking away the previously used coping skills for strong emotions, the strong emotions are still there, but the coping skills are looking a little bit different. And that's really, mm-hmm. really hard, right? Because you're implementing new things versus going back to some of the eating disorder behavior. 
So mm-hmm. the eating disorder can be very loud at this stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The last one here is um, the maintenance stage. So this is the one where you know a person kind of has made huge huge strides. They're working to kind of maintain the progress. Maybe the eating disorder thoughts are still there, but maybe they're more they're less intense. And it doesn't mean that there isn't necessarily lapses in there, but it's more that sense of and again can look different for for many people, but it can be that sense of, um, yeah, like the eating disorder thoughts. I've recognized them. I can see them coming. I can hear them. I may not act on them in this moment. Mm-hmm. So that can be a way to kind of see that that stage here for the maintenance phase. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Kind of like maintaining the progress that we have made and moving towards that recovery piece. Mm-hmm. But I also love that you mean, and sometimes there can be those like relapses that happen in this phase too. Absolutely. It's not going back to square one. It's just yes. kind of like part of the recovery process. Yeah. And it's like the lapses are part of the learning piece. And a lot of times in this stage here, what we'll do with clients is work on relapse prevention plans. So that can look like trigger identifications. And I like doing them the green, yellow, red one where we, and it's very personal to the person, but we, we kind of identify, you know, in the green is when things are feeling okay, mine could be good. And I, I break it down into what are some of the actions that are happening in the green? What are some of the thoughts that currently come in the green? What are some of the behaviors, some of the emotions and some of the urges? And we do that for, for yellow. So that's more of the, oh, let's pay attention. What are some of the potential triggers. And then red is more in terms of re-engaging in some of the eating disorder behaviors. So it can be helpful to have more of like a visual progression of what to look, just to kind of look out for. It can be different for some people. They're like, oh, if I'm noticing that I'm isolating a little bit more, or if I'm noticing that I'm going back to maybe I'm, I'm not challenging fun foods as much as I, I used to. So it could just be little things, but it's more just that sense of kind of keeping track of those things. Yeah, I love that. And I love the way that you're saying it, because I think for me, it really kind of shows this idea that recovery is not like a point that you get to. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, cool, like we're, we're done. done. And like nothing happens anymore. And like, I just continue. Whereas like, I really see and like, from my experience, I feel like recovery is just kind of like the journey now, (laughs) you know, and just like how we continue to be. And I think there continues to be like an awareness and thoughts and behaviors and things that are more intentional than I would say before having an eating disorder that maybe we didn't have to think about some of these things. So I really like the way that you're saying it because it's kind of like have built this like awareness of self to support ourselves in the different ways, which yep. is also kind of a superpower. Absolutely. And it's just the, the awareness piece. And again, like I, even in my own journey, like even to this day, there may be some in terms in times of stress, I may still notice an eating disorder thought pop up, right? Or sometimes it can be things like uh, changing of the seasons and And I'm trying on some of my my winter clothes and I may have the thought that like an old thought, but the recognition pattern, I was like, oh, this is an old thought kind of happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's more that recognition, but like, oh, haven't had one of those in a while, but there you are kind of thing. Yeah. And it, yeah. Is, and it won't necessarily affect kind of the rest of my day. Yeah. Which is a huge thing. It's a huge thing. I used to tell this to Anthony and I used to tell him that like, although like the eating disorder was one of the hardest thing having to go through, I'm like, I don't know that I would be like the recovery process has also given me so much in terms of being able to work on like the emotions, mm-hmm. self awareness, thoughts. I'm like, I don't think I would have done any of this work if I hadn't had the eating disorder, but it kind of forced 
like the recovery process provides you with so many tools that you then use for the rest of your life. And Absolutely. I'm like, it's, it's, such, it's almost a weird thing to be grateful for because I'm like, I would never wish this on anyone. No. And it has also allowed me to discover myself, you know, and like it had built so much awareness of self. Yeah. And all this, and not just the skills, but that like that capacity for introspection or that, that sense of, um, and it doesn't mean that like everything's great. I'm perfect. Wow. I know everything, but it's more, no, 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 absolutely not. But it's more that sense of, yeah, like, I don't know if I would be so well versed in understanding emotions or talking about emotions had I not kind of had to go through this myself. Yeah, absolutely. I'm wondering if there's like a loved one listening or even maybe someone who's struggling, who's like, oh, I've been stuck, let's say in like contemplation phase. Is there a way to help me move through the stages? I wonder how you would kind of support someone through that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, again, the I think we had talked about this a little bit earlier, but one of the hard parts is that loved ones might be in different stages or kind of expecting the loved one to progress kind of how they think. And I don't think from a conscious perspective, but more for, okay, well, like we've done this. So therefore we should be here, right? So more of that mm-hmm. literal trajectory. So that's already one of the pieces here is just overall from a global perspective, know that it is fluid, know that your loved one may be at a different stage and that may change how you you respond, right? If, if um, we're noticing that our loved one is potentially in the contemplation stage for one thing, maybe it's encouraging the person to talk more about their thoughts and feelings and maybe reflecting a listening going, Oh, like I hear that like part of you feels like this, but then another part of you is maybe feeling like this, right? So kind of maybe showing that little bit of that discrepancy in terms of thinking, being like, oh, like I'm noticing you're, yeah, you like you did share that uh, you're finding it really hard to concentrate in school and, and those pieces. And I'm also hearing you say that there's a part of you that finds this really hard to kind of think about changing. So kind of holding mm-hmm. both of those pieces can be helpful, for example, like in that stage. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And I think too, like for the person who is maybe trying for themselves to move along, I think one, getting that support can be really, really important. But I also feel like, I don't know how you feel about this, but I feel like two parts for me with that question would be kind of like one, I think we get to spend time prepping ourselves, and it's okay to like make space for that. Like, I don't think that, I mean, I say this with like knowing that when we have an eating disorder, it's really unpleasant and we want to recover or like we want things to feel better. So it can be hard to kind of give us that space and like patience with self to be able to move through. But then I also think it's kind of like looking at the steps and like breaking it down to really, really small steps too. I remember in my own experience when I would get stuck somewhere, it's because the next step was way too big mm-hmm. and I would just freeze because it was just too much and being able to like even look at like, well, what would be the one next small kind step I could take and what would that look like for me? I think it'd be helpful. Yeah. And that's one of the approaches that you can use for other things too, right? It's the breaking it down. We can use that for anxiety and mood management when something feels like it's too much. I'm like, okay, how can we break it down? How can we make them feel like it's more manageable? Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And in the sense, again, that um, these steps do fluctuate and, and just the, the maybe having some, some self-compassion or fostering some self-compassion that it is challenging. Right. And it, mm-hmm. it is fluid. And I mean, sometimes yeah, the like recognizing that where you where you're at can feel very different from 
day to day based on mood too, right? If we're having a really tough day and there's a lot of external things that are happening, our thoughts mm-hmm. may be a little bit more, more on the sense of like, well, I, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if like, what's the point? This is too hard, right? So kind mm-hmm. of having like taking a step back and also going, okay, well, what else is contributing? Why, why is this particularly feeling extra hard today? Kind of thing. Yeah, no, I love that so, so much. It feels like it's such a compassionate approach to care, which is how it should be. Mm-hmm. And I think our... <laughs> our value system here at the practice where we're like, it should be that way. Very like person-centered and compassionate. Yeah. I'm curious like for anybody who is listening, like, is there anything else you would say in terms of like expectations of the recovery process and what that can look like for, for them? That's a good question. So in terms of expectations, I think, again, like I know I've said this a lot of times because it does (laughs) depend on the person, but that sense of uh, having that conversation of like, what are my expectations, right? Is this something that, you know, it may not be two sessions and we're done kind of thing. Like just more that sense that it, it can be a long process and it doesn't mean that it has to be from that perspective, right? Like the, change can happen. I think they talked about, there was a study, multiple studies on that, where they measured people's stress levels and anxiety levels kind of before and after they had reached out for the first time. And people reported like after reaching out for the first time already kind of a decrease in their anxiety because they knew that they were potentially going to have an appointment or start something. So sometimes that piece there can be really helpful. I love that you named that because I can totally see that happening. Just kind of being like, all right, like I will have support or I'm getting support. And that in itself is already like, we're already in the stages of change. Like mm-hmm. we've, we took action. Yep. Like here we are. Like here we are. And then there may be a, starting it. And there may be a day where like the, the first appointment starts and you're like, I don't know if I can do this. This is really tough. Yeah. But like, again, like we're, we're also here to move with you throughout the stages. Like I don't come to therapy, like as a therapist going like, we got to be here. We got to be right here today. Yeah. Oh, and I think that's so important to name. It's so, so important to name that like your team is there with you yeah. in whatever stage you are at. And I don't think there's ever this expectation of like, you shall complete these goals by this, like a smart goal, like mm-hmm. by this date, you must have done blah, 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 blah. Like that's truly not how it works. But then also the like just setting the expectations of like, in my experience, <laughs> most folks that we've worked with, there will be like a sense of doubt at one point, like mm-hmm. doubting that you actually want to to recover. Like, I don't think I've met someone who is like, I want to cover a hundred percent and like never doubted the journey. And like, this is wonderful. And I think even normalizing that piece of like coming to session and being like, do I want this? Mm-hmm. Do I want to do this work? And I think it's a very legit questions to ask ourselves when we are in the recovery process, because recovery is inherently difficult because we're actively challenging a part of us, right? A part of the, like the eating disorder that potentially has been there for years and has, like you said, role, like a there's a reason why it's there. It's, there's a reason why it's being maintained. And when we're actively challenging it, it's okay that it's challenging. And it's okay that we can have those like questions, right? Of like, do I want to do this? Is it important for me to be here? Is it important for me to work towards it? And that in itself is not a failure or it doesn't even mean that you don't want recovery. It means that you're a human going through the recovery process and it's difficult. Absolutely. And again, like we think about eating disorders as like coping mechanisms or protective, like in a way it was protective and helpful in that moment. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're kind of talking about not just the functions of the eating disorders, but like kind of all of the pieces that contributed. And to also point that we do live in a society that is so entrenched in diet culture, like recovering yeah. and, and it's just extra, extra difficult. Yeah. Like if we all got on an island today and we call it like the recovery island and did the work together, it would still be challenging because the eating disorder there, but doing it inside diet culture is Goodness. right. It's just like we're, we're doing it at like level hard. Mm-hmm. It's like we're playing <laughs> the a, new, get-go. a new video game, but we're just going to start on expert level and just kind of, yeah. but we, you know, it's, it's hard. And then um, we're kind of here to help kind of support through that and to talk about how diet culture and internalized messages about food and health and body image has also shaped a lot of the experiences too. Yeah, absolutely. I'm like feeling pulled to ask a little bit about harm reduction just because I feel like we're talking, you know, a lot about recovery and what we, you know, I think a lot of folks wanting to work through recovery. And sometimes if recovery is not accessible at that time, like it's not recovery or nothing, right? Like there is this piece of our harm reduction. And I'm curious if you want to just like touch base on that a little bit to kind of talk like what does that look like for recovery or for treatment? Mm-hmm. I think the just the word sometimes harm reduction, I think sometimes people go like inherently, I don't know if that's how some people feel, but sometimes as even as clinicians, I don't know if, if some folks, we internalize it as like, oh, like I'm not, I'm, I'm not doing something right. Or this is like the mm-hmm. other version of if you're not, if you don't want to do this, I guess we can do this, but it's not right. It's a lot more complex than that. Um, and I think it really speaks to more of the therapy centered, like on the person, kind of like how everybody has unique needs and our individuals and we're kind of working with them throughout that. So more in that mm-hmm. sense of like, how can we meet you where you're at yet still kind of have some space for challenge? So more, yeah. more from that lens of like, um, it's not a fail in recovery. It's more absolutely just maybe a part in the journey where mm-hmm. maybe we're focusing more on this versus that. That's kind of how I like to see it. Yeah, I really see it too as like harm reduction to me is an approach that also takes into consideration that being able to recover also includes a lot of privileges that we may have, right? Like access to care and support and housing and food and having a stable income. Like there's so much that can support someone in recovery. And sometimes if we don't have access to those things, like you said, like it's not a backup option, (laughs) but it is a trajectory that we can also take in terms of the eating disorder serves a role right now. That's too important for us to let go of it. Or it may actually be almost more difficult to let go of it or like potentially harmful to let go of it if we're not having, you know, the other things in place. And I'm like being very broad, but it's because it, it is broad. <laughs> it's such a nuanced thing, yeah. right? But it's also um, very specific to the person. That's why. But it's, it's also bold. so, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like so broad yet so specific to each person of like when engaging in harm reduction may not be that we're actively working towards no longer having the eating disorder, but it may be more like working towards how do I live here on planet earth? Make sure that I'm safe and able to live here while having my eating disorder. Mm-hmm. I like to think about it as like the all or nothing thinking that sometimes I think, I guess, I don't know if the medical system has more of that approach is like, you have to follow this, or it has to be a certain way, or we're not going to maybe provide support. So it's that mm. sense of, and I know I, I've experienced that myself as a, as an individual, that sense of, if I don't kind of meet this definition of what it should look like, then I'm not doing it right. And then, mm. I'll, you know, if we throw in the perfectionism there, that doesn't help like that, that sense of all or nothing, I have to be doing it this way or that way, or else I fail. I find the harm reduction is maybe a way of 
it can be a way of providing some nuance here and there. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I often feel like for me and my practice and the way I work with clients, I find like harm reduction also is part of recovery too. Yeah, absolutely. Like even if we're actively working through recovery, I can never expect that like week per week, we're going to be actively working through recovery, right? And kind of like merging in some harm rejection, harm rejection, yeah. <laughs> harm reduction through recovery process, I think is also just part of it. It's just kind of what we do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you know, I know Christmas is coming or any other holidays, uh, holiday season is coming up. So sometimes that's a conversation we usually start having with clients um, around November, just kind of cope ahead. Sometimes it's, we talk about cope ahead strategies, sometimes knowing that there's, there may be, not for everybody, but there may be some extra stressors around the holidays. Mm-hmm. So just sometimes kind of having that conversation there too is part of, of, of the journey in terms of knowing that, oh, you know what, this may be more stressful. Let's see how we can kind of cope ahead together. What can we figure out? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for just all of your wisdoms and thoughts and on on this topic. I think this is such an important conversation to actually just talk about recovery and what it can look like and debunking some myths around this like ideal of recovery that many folks can have. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. No, of course. So I'd love for you to share with folks, if somebody wants to work with you, how, how can they do that? Yeah. So currently I'm, um, I work one-on-one with folks. I um, work sometimes as well with families, with parenting support as well. Um, and I'm also part of the eating disorder group, um, facilitating groups once a week as well. So if you'd like to, to work with me, you can book through our lovely clinical manager, Haley. And shout out to Haley, who is Haley. a lifesaver for all of us. <laughs> so helpful. She's the best. Awesome. Yes. I'll I'll add all the links in the show note down there too. And then you'll also be able to like read her bio on the website and all of the beautiful things that Monique does. And now we're going to finish with our fun questions. I love those. Are we ready? Yeah, me too. They're my favorite. So the first question is, what do you love most about being part of the balance practice team? I love that it's a very collaborative space. And I like that we all work together with similar values. And I think that's very important. Also, the, the fact that we're multidisciplinary is beautiful in the sense that you know, um, if I'm if we're working with a client and we know that they're also connected with one of our dietitians, I'm um, just being able to we're all on the same page and we're all able to collaborate together. I find that's been very helpful, not just for me as a clinician, but also for clients too. So I mm-hmm. love that we're very similar in terms of our values and that the collaboration piece is one of the most wonderful things for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Such such an important thing with the values being all the same. Like it's just, it's just a vibe. Absolutely. Um, what is your favorite food? That's a good question. I love any kind of Korean food. So I can mm-hmm. eat kimchi. Like I put kimchi on everything. <laughs> but uh, I do love, and this is perfect because it's the season for some of like the, the nice kind of stews. But I like like gamjatang. It's like this really delicious Korean um, soup. And it is perfect for days like today. So and we're oh. end of November, kind of a little bit chilly. It's beautiful. You're like, yes, and thank you. Yeah, what about you? <laughs> I love it. My favorite food, mm. I have to say my like ultimate favorite food would be sushi because mm. I feel like I could eat sushi all day, every day for the rest of my life and just be a very happy camper. Yeah, it has to be that. It has to be that. I'm like, I don't have it often enough that I still love it so, so much, you know, yeah. like yeah. it's just like my, oh yeah, it's just so good. It's delicious. <laughs> I know for um, their holiday get together with the team, I'm like, oh, so what do you want to do? Do you guys like sushi? sushi. <laughs> like, <laughs> 
trying to convince everyone that we should have. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? I think I'd be able to, if I could talk to animals, that would be amazing. Oh. That would be so great. Just in that sense of kind of like Dr. Doolittle vibes, just to be able to, yeah. to kind of communicate and to hear. And I think, uh, yeah, I would want to, I feel like I know what my dog is saying, but I'd like to be able to like converse back with her and for her to understand exactly what we're kind of talking about. Oh my God. That would be like the best superpower. Also, you're the first one on the podcast to ever name that as a superpower. I feel like it should be, yeah, Some it would be it. lovely to be able to do that. Like just, yeah. But I, I'd also like, I don't know if I actually would want to know all her thoughts. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Just like, maybe not. What is your favorite way to self-care? Ooh, that's a good one. I do. So I have some training. I, I trained under an art therapist for a while. So um, I do have some um, like art therapy based training, but just on my own, I do enjoy art as a way to decompress. I like to, to paint. Um, I don't like to draw. That's like some people will ask like, oh, can you draw? I'm like, I, I can't. I don't want to. No. I don't like it. I have some more, more painting crafts. I've been obsessed with this. Um, the, I don't know if people have ever done the diamond dots where it's just big. No. It's a picture. It's kind of like paper. By numbers but it's like with little like little diamonds and it's very mindful right because you have to be really precise about it um and you can kind of leave you're like them. gluing on diamonds yeah and it looks amazing yeah oh. just do a little bit at the time it's not like paint where you have to you know i find if i'm painting i have to i feel like i need to commit a little bit longer because i'm like oh the paint's gonna dry this if you if you have the space to be able to leave it out just do a little bit of uh, little dots and it's it's a very kind of mindful exercise and it's very nice to decompress I like it. I like it. Manik also led the team with a, wait, how do you call it? A paint over? No. Pour over. Pour over paint. I still have them all at home. They're going to come to the office because they're all like so pretty. I love them. And it's a great, it's one of those that um, it's cool. As we were talking about that when we were doing the activity, it's great to challenge a sense of perfectionism (laughs) and kind of because you can't really control where the paint goes, right? You can control kind of how much you put in, but the paint goes where it wants to go. And it can yeah. be hard to know how much to add, when to stop. It's, it's a it's for really me. It's wonderful. like when you like a design, you're like, oh my god, this looks really perfect. But then you do something else, and it takes it away, and you're like, no, yeah. the loss. Yeah, you definitely have a lot of feelings when you're doing an activity like that. Yeah, yep. so it was, a, it was a fun one to kind of have all together. And the cool part is that they do not that you know art has to come from a place of oh it has to look good, but they always look cool. Like specifically, they do. They do look cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And if you guys come to our in-person office, once we open, you'll be able to see them all on the wall mm-hmm. and comment if they're cool or not. I think they're cool, but <laughs> we'll see. Just please tell us that they're cool. That's the only option. Okay. And last question for you, as we work at the balance practice, I'd love to know what does balance mean to you? Oh, that's a good question. More that sense of, and I know we've talked a lot about this today, but like that sense of nuance, right? Not necessarily mm-hmm. all or nothing, this or that. It's that being able to kind of tolerate the fluidity and kind of being in the gray. I feel like that that sums it up pretty nicely just in terms of balance in all of different areas of life. I love that so, so much. Thank you so much again, Manik, for being on the podcast today. This was such a good conversation and I'm really glad that we made the time to record this podcast together. Well, thank you so much for having me and uh, this was a lot of fun. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. I hope that you absolutely love the podcast as much as I did. Manik is such a beautiful human with so much knowledge when it comes to eating disorder care. And you probably heard him today, but she holds so much space and compassion for all of her clients who are navigating 
recovery and all the challenges that it can bring. If you're interested in working with Manik, she's currently taking on new clients. So you can go to www.thebalancepractice.com or send us an email at info at thebalancepractice.com and we'd be really happy to connect you with Manik. On that note, my friends, I hope that you have a beautiful day and I will catch you next week in the next episode. 